This is Jocelyn K. Gly, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidberkuscom slash podcast. Click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com. You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkuscom slash podcast or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do? I am a writer primarily for the moment. Um, I just put out a book called Unsubscribe, which is about how to get over email anxiety um, and spend more time on real work, meaningful work. Um, And I'm actually in the process of um, working on a couple of new projects, one of which is a podcast and one of which is an online course. So kind of uh, expanding the purview beyond writer a bit. Nice. Are they? I mean, are they all in line with the unsubscribe idea, or this very is, much so? For, um, for our pod- listeners, this is new information to me. Even though you and I go back for you know <laughs> however many years, exactly. I'm just kind of springing it on you. Um, the podcast is going to be called "Hurry Slowly," and um, you know the idea is very much, I think, encapsulated in the name. It's really about how to um, how we can be more creative and more productive by slowing down. I think that everyone is kind of really operating at a, a pace these days that's fairly unsustainable um, and fairly unproductive. So it's kind of about um, rethinking that and then kind of, you know, looking at that through a bunch of different lenses, topics like decision making, risk taking, managing your attention and things of that nature. Hmm. No, very cool. Very, very cool. And so as you mentioned, the the book is called Unsubscribe. It's recently out, although not not that recently. Ironically, it took forever for us to find a time via email to um to, to record this this conversation. So I guess that's proof of concept for the whole book, right? If it took us that long to ping back and forth through email, just how bad of a medium this is but <laughs> precisely i yeah. think that um and you know it's uh unfortunately at least for the moment or probably at least for another decade or so email is still a uh, fairly timeless subject and something that i think we're all going to continue to uh, struggle with unfortunately <laughs> well it's something that we love to hate and i i know that's true mm-hmm. because that's the you know in under new management there was a whole chapter on companies that are that are outlawing internal email. We've we've had Cal Newport um, on the show, and he is not a fan of, of email. Um, in fact, he what I love his whole strategy is he's trying to be intentionally bad at it so that people stop sending him messages, which I think is a good one. But you know, one thing we've never really talked about is that why piece. Why are we stuck with it for so long? And or why do we love to hate it? Why are we so addicted to it, etc.? I know I didn't. I never covered it in, under new management with these companies. I just sort of. Um, glossed over it and got to the stress piece, but you really did a great job in unsubscribe unpacking the science behind 
why we're addicted to it. I mean, it's essentially our own little pocket lottery machine. Yeah. And I mean, one of the reasons I thought it was interesting to, um, you know, devote a substantive amount of time to talking just about email is I think that it's sort of a microcosm for all of our challenges, um, you know, with our attention. And so the kind of lessons that we can learn through analyzing why we find email uh, so addictive, uh, then, you know, extend to you know, Slack extend to Twitter and extend to kind of all these other different, um, you know, apps and tools that we are, are kind of confronted with on a daily basis. Um, and we could, if you want, we can kind of dive right into the random reward stuff. Cause I think that's one of the kind of key concepts that really extends across all those things. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's do it. I, I, you know, it's in a lot of talks that I give, I kind of joke that we should have known this email thing was going to be a problem because the very first people to ever have smartphones had blackberries and we called them crackberries. But mm-hmm. in but in in your book, you really unpacked it. Like we should have known this was going to be a problem because B.F. Skinner. That's why we should have known this is going to be a problem. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, so in talking about random rewards, I mean, he was, you know, this this sort of person who discovered that, you know, decades and decades ago, looking at, you know, essentially did these tests, right, to um, test. Um, kind of positive and negative behavior reinforcements with rats. And, um, you know, what he did was he created that, you know, now sort of notorious device, the Skinner box. And, um, you know, he he tested what would happen when he rewarded the rats um, initially on a fixed schedule, you know, so you kind of, they're in the cage, they press this lever, um, you know, and say every 20 times they press the lever, they get a food pellet, right? And then he tested what would happen when um, he rewarded them on a variable schedule. So in that scenario, you know, they would press the lever and, you know, maybe every 20th time they get a pellet or maybe every 78th time, you know, it's completely unpredictable. They never knew when they were going to food pellet when they were going to get that reward. And when he compared how the the rats reacted on the different schedules, he found that when they were on the variable schedule, they would sort of continue pressing that lever again and again and again, almost until the point of death sometimes, um, in a way that they, you know, was completely different than when they were on the fixed schedule. When they were on that variable schedule, when they were getting those random rewards, um, you know, they were incredibly, incredibly addicted. And, you know, unfortunately, we're not very different from rats. And so, you know, email is very similar um, in that way. It's very much a random rewards machine um, that activates this kind of primal seeking mechanism in our brains, right? You you used uh, the slot machine metaphor, right? It's kind of like, most of the time you, you know, sort of pull the lever, and, you know, you kind of lose, you get something like a crappy email from you know, an upset client or a customer, or you get an email from, a, you know, your boss asking you to do something you don't really want to do. But every once in a while, you pull that lever, you know, you check your email and get something great, you know, an email from a long lost friend or, you know, a flattering invitation to speak at a conference. And those random rewards are, um, you know, what really keep us sort of um, addictively engaged with email. I just get new updates from Netflix that the next season of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is out. That's, that's all I ever, no, I'm kidding. Although that is a positive reward. Um, no, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting because we think about, um, you know, we think about gamblers, we think about especially people that get addicted to slot machines, right? I mean, they're staring, there, sort of like zombie-like pulling, mm-hmm. pulling the lever and we make fun of it. 
as we stare down at our phone and and drag down our inbox to refresh it every time. I mean, it's literally like the same downward motion, right? Whether it's pulling the lever down or swiping exactly, the email right? inbox down. And we never think about that idea that it's, it's the same mechanics at work that are making us zombies in both cases. Yeah, exactly. That same zombie-like nature. And, you know, I think, right, we talked about that concept kind of extending to many things. And so, of course, email is not, you know, the only random rewards machine, right, that you're kind of thumbing down and refreshing, right? It could be, you know, it could be Tinder, or it could be, um, you know, looking at Slack, or it could be looking at Instagram, you know, so we're surrounded by these random rewards machines. And I think, um, you know, they really tap into this kind of primal brain chemistry. And um, that's that's why we kind of get caught in this modality where we're just sort of blindly, uh, you know, staring at our phones and kind of looking to them for direction. Um, but I think it becomes quite dangerous at a certain point because you can, uh, you know, really fritter away untold amounts of time, um, you know, doing these, these activities that are relatively meaningless. Um, you know, they're really in many ways the equivalent of just sort of doing busy work. Yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree with that. And that's, that actually is an, is an interesting um, segue into, because you use the term busy work, into kind of the other, the other reason we might spend our whole day in our email inbox. And this is what I'd never really thought of before. I mean, I, I went to grad school for psychology, so I'm familiar with B.F. Skinner. Um, although I never really made the equivalence between my addiction and my iPhone and, and <laughs> you know, the, uh, the addi- slot machine addictions, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. But this one I never really thought of, which is that like there's not it's not just the checking email that's addictive. The actual kind of way that an email inbox is laid out can make us feel like we're doing productive work when we're really not when we're doing that busy work. Yeah. And that's um, it's, this goes back to this idea of completion bias, which to me is one of kind of the most fascinating um, concepts that um, I get to kind of dive into in the book. And that's this idea that you know, as as humans, our brains are essentially wired um, to seek out completion. You know, and when we recognize a task as complete, they release dopamine and that makes us feel good and that makes us, you know, want to repeat those types of behaviors. And so that it means that we really, what that means is we really like to see progress, right? Like we really like to tick things off. And what that does is that it makes us actually predisposed to sort of focus on these quick, easy to finish tasks rather than, you know, sort of more challenging long-term tasks. And, you know, we take that concept and you sort of translate it onto this idea of checking email and you think about, okay, why are we so obsessed with inbox zero, right? And that's because that's sort of that ultimate completion of email. But even, you know, as you noted, even as you're sifting through your inbox, you know, and you're kind of going from, you know, 147 unread messages to 146 to 145, you're getting these like little mini hits of completion. And we find that, you know, that as well is very addictive. And so that's, you know, I think that's a huge part of why we kind of um, get sucked into email and, you know, other, other activities, you know, whether it's just checking notifications on Twitter or Facebook, say, because we like to kind of tick those things off. Um, but it does mean that, um, you know, we can get really sucked into busy work because it feels like we're making progress, even if, you know, ultimately we're not really working on the things that are going to provide very much long-term value for us. 
So, you know, the, uh, and by the way, I'm totally addicted with Inbox Zero. Um, so I get that right <laughs> away. And I think too, I mean, the weird thing is not only is it, is it driving our focus towards, like you said, those little routine, um, easy tasks, and that's all mm-hmm. sort of busy work and not to use the, the Cal Newport term, not deep work. But the other thing is, I think it actually contributes to the problem of even more messages because we're not really sending information rich messages. We're just trying to reply with something, then delete. And then when that inevitably brings up another question that we probably could have anticipated, um, when it brings up that another question, we get the email back. I mean, that's probably the most frustrating thing is when you get to inbox zero and not 30 minutes later, there's a reply from somebody that you sent to in that day. And suddenly your progress bar is, is no longer full. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think we all know that feeling of like, yeah, you finally get through it. And that's like, ding. And you know, you're kind of feel like you're back to square one. And I think a lot of us do that, right? The sort of pushback email, you know, you so much just want to feel like it's done, that you don't, you know, say you're trying to schedule a meeting with someone rather than, you know, just suggesting a time and a place and a date, you know, when they ask if you can meet, you just write back and say, you know, yes, or sure, knowing that, of course, you're going to have 10 more email exchanges, you know, about the planning, but you just kind of want to get it out of the way. Um, So, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it also sort of induces kind of a, a slightly kind of lazy behavior sometimes, a sort of like just just get it done for right now type of behavior, uh, which is which is fairly unproductive. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I again, I totally agree. And and then what's interesting is is to some extent, even if it's not the information richness that's causing or the lack of information richness that's causing them to have to reply with, okay, well now that we've agreed to lunch, what day and what time and all that sort of stuff. It's also just that feeling that all emails need to be replied to. And you, you talked in, interestingly, really interestingly about this with recipro- reciprocity and this idea that like um, we all feel this weird, subtle pull to reply to something even though we don't have to. And there's there was a, a fascinating study involving Christmas cards on this one that I'm actually thinking about doing, by the way. I forgot to tell you that. I'm, I'm actually thinking about oh, doing recreating this. it. Yeah, yeah. Just, just to build my own list of people that are telling me about Christmas. But let uh, t- talk about that that study first, and then how that applies to everything we're talking about. Because you say it better than I do. Yeah. Well, I mean, the rule of reciprocity at the most basic level, right, is that, you know, we're all taught as humans, kind of every culture around the world, that, you know, we should return a positive action with another positive action. And so this guy, Philip Kuntz, back in, I believe it was 1974, wanted to sort of test the the rule of um, reciprocation. And so he did this this study that was really fascinating. He, um, you know, this is back in the dark ages before the internet. So he looked up 600 perfect strangers in the phone book. He wrote down their addresses. And then he crafted the sort of custom holiday card that had like a photo of him and his family. And then he mailed it off to these 600 strangers. And so he wanted to see, you know, would they reciprocate? Would they write back to him? Um, You know, and so he sent them out, waited a few days. And after about five days, you know, replies kind of started coming in and they kept coming in until ultimately he had, I believe it was over 200 replies. So, you know, about a third of the people who he had never met um, wrote back to him. And then some of those people, you know, continued actually to send him Christmas cards for the next 10 or 15 years, right? Which is quite remarkable. Um, and so I think it was a real testament to the the power of, of the rule of reciprocity. But I think what happens now is, 
you know, the average person, um, you know, one of the numbers commonly cited is the average person gets about 200 emails a day. Um, you know, so if you think about the rule of reciprocity and you think about this volume of email that everyone is receiving on a daily basis, you know, we have this kind of strong human social urge to reciprocate, which, you know, normally is good, normally encourages collaboration. But when you're sitting there looking at 200 emails in your inbox, this kind of rule of reciprocity can kind of start to bite you in the ass, right? Because is responding to every one of those 200 emails really the best use of your time, you know, or are there, you know, sort of more important, more impactful, more meaningful ways that you could be spending your time? So I think we have to kind of, um, one, I think it's really good to just be aware of that concept so you can understand why you have this really strong urge to reply to those emails that you get, even if it's from a perfect stranger. But two, to understand that we have to, um, you know, I say in the book, sort of think about um, how we can start to say no to some opportunities so that you can say yes to your priorities. Because if you're just, you know, blindly reciprocating, you're just, you really are going to be kind of wasting your time, um, you know, on a very high volume of busy work and have very little time for sort of doing your best work. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, this could totally be used to increase the number of Christmas presents and Christmas part cards that you're getting. But that's not... <laughs> That's not really the point. Um, really, the, the point is that, I mean, I think this is the, the case with all of these. And this is often what I say uh, in, in talking about companies that have taken steps to restrict or ban email, et cetera. Is it's not actually about that. It's about, just like what you said, it, it's about actually thinking deliberately about this tool and how you can use it and how it may be using you to begin with, but then also how you can sort of shape that. It's about sort of understanding the psychology and then from there, you can kind of build a strategy or a set of tactics to help mitigate that, whether that's realizing you have a problem with reciprocity, realizing you're never going to get to inbox zero or, you know, or, or even just realizing that you're you're playing the slot machine on your iPhone uh, instead of or oh, maybe actually maybe that's the solution. Maybe we should all just get slot machine apps on our iPhone and that way we won't <laughs> check email because we're addicted to something else. I mean, I'm yeah. kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but admit it. I'm not that far off. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think to me, one of the the things that is important to recognize as well beyond kind of some of the psychological concepts is that there's been sort of a, a pretty fundamental shift in the way that people use email and the types of emails that are showing up in our inbox that um, should dictate a change in the way that we treat email. But I think some of us is sort of, this has kind of happened and we're sort of unaware of it. So if you think about, you know, even the idea of inbox zero, right, this phrase, which was coined by Merlin Mann in 2007, March of 2007, I believe, um, he coined that phrase. And literally it was two months later that the first iPhone was released, right? So then immediately we started shifting to this world where your email, you know, unless you had a BlackBerry, as you mentioned, um, could follow you around, right? And of course, an infinite more amount of people have access to a smartphone than have access, you know, than ever had access to a PC. So the sort of sheer volume of people who, you know, could get onto the internet, could find your email address, could write you an email, could show up in your inbox uninvited and could ask you to do something for them has gone like drastically up. And so I think, you know, and the noise in our inbox has gone drastically up at the same time as, you know, a lot of the sort of more maybe meaningful um, communication at work 
work has shifted to other platforms like Slack, for example, right? So, you know, there's there are definitely some important emails that are happening in our inbox, but there's a lot more noise, a lot more requests from strangers, a lot more, as you say, newsletter promotions, a lot more sort of one-to-many type of communications. And I think that... Um, some of us haven't really shifted the way that we use our email to accommodate that to it, you know, to kind of make that shift of, you know, thinking about, <clears throat> I talk in the book about, you know, the Pareto, Pareto's principle, right. And this idea that, you know, um, you know, 20% of the work that you do produces 80% of the value, you know, so taking that concept and maybe grafting it onto your inbox, is it possible that, you know, maybe only about 20% of the emails in your inbox are actually producing 80% of the value and the work that really matters to you? I think that is more closer to the type of attitude that we probably have to take towards email these days. Yeah, no, I, again, I totally uh, agree. And, you know, you mentioned actually, so you brought up Slack and you mentioned that a lot of places are, are going to these tools, but you also mentioned earlier that these same sort of things can happen, right? So mm -hmm. you, you can get just as addicted as that. So how do we maybe even on an individual level sort of inoculate ourselves for that? It's, it's one thing to sort of switch mediums and understand where the information rich ones are, et cetera. It's a whole other thing to kind of start building up this resistance to um, the whole addiction process. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, on the, on the idea of random reward, um, you know, to me, it's sort of shifting our mindset of, you know, saying, asking ourselves the question of, you know, do we want random rewards or do we want real rewards? And starting to think about how we can actually identify what our real rewards are, because I think that those random rewards machines, whether it's Slack or whether it's email, are particularly alluring when we're a bit aimless at work, um, when we're not maybe so clear on, um, you know, what we want to accomplish or what our real priorities are. And, you know, there's just simple ways to do that, um, you know, on a macro level, it's like I sit down every three months, you know, identify, um, you know, the two or three, um, you know, kind of key projects that I feel like are really going to move the needle in my career, move the needle in my business, um, you know, write down what my goals are for those projects, um, key action steps to get there and, you know, like post them on the wall across from my desk. They're literally in my, my all the time. Um, and then on a more um, micro level, you know, just small shifts, like making, um, tomorrow's to-do list the night before so that you wake up crystal clear on what you want to accomplish. So when all these types of random requests come in, you know, via email, via a coworker tapping you on the shoulder, like you can respond to those requests within the framework of already knowing what you want to accomplish. Because I think that, a lot of us have that feeling that like we would rather be doing something else, but because we kind of have these things like email and Slack to kind of constantly tell us what to do, we, you know, sometimes lean on that and actually don't take the time to get really clear on how our time would be most um, wisely used on kind of what the real rewards are. So I think that's one kind of, kind of, you know, powerful mindset shift to make to kind of constantly try to be really clear on what the real rewards are for you at work. Oh, no. I mean, you totally misunderstand. There's nothing I love to do more than sit in my email inbox and reply to stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like all of us, right? 
No, all right. So, so you, you talked about a couple, a couple interesting strategies there. They're really more productivity hacks than anything else. How to sort of keep that focus, etc. Do mm-hmm. you? I'm curious in your own press. So you've been, you've been, uh, you, you've dove, dove deep into the research. You outline a bunch of different strategies. I'm curious to see which ones you use and which ones um, you experimented with, maybe and found awesome, or which ones you didn't. In terms of, um, do you, do you limit when you check to only certain hours? Do you like you know deliberately leave your phone in the car? Uh, or your bag when you get home from work or whatever? What what strategies have you tried and which ones worked well for you? Yeah. I mean, well, I definitely do, um, you know, do sort of, uh, you know, talking about, uh, which I talk about in the book, the batch processing, which is, you know, something um, you mentioned Cal Newport had been on the show is also a big advocate of, um, you know, just making sure that you're kind of uh, limiting yourself to checking your email a few times a day, um, which, you know, research has shown, you know, makes you more productive. It makes you less stressed and it makes you happier. It's a pretty good argument for doing so. Um, be 100% focused on email when I'm on it and 100% not focused on email when I'm not. Um, But I also do things I find for myself that, um, you know, especially if there are moments when I have to check email, like say outside of those times, because something's particularly urgent um, or, you know, there's, uh, you know, some, I'm on deadline about something, maybe need to communicate with someone. Um, I actually really like to just check email only on my cell phone because I feel like somehow segregating it from, um, you know, my primary workspace, my primary laptop screen, um, does kind of keep, um, it physically separate in my mind in a way and kind of reduces anxiety in a way that, um, you know, somehow less than when you kind of have it constantly open in the background. And again, that's something that, you know, kind of from a research-based perspective has been shown to be true that sort of it's best to kind of keep your email off of your, um, primary work screen. Um, But for me, the thing that's the most powerful, I think, is related going back to that concept of we talked about completion bias and how that really, you know, ties into why we get so addicted to email. For me, the most powerful thing is to, um, unrelated to email, is to really like track my progress on the work that's meaningful to me. So outside of my email, um, you know, so I'm a writer like yourself. So, you know, thinking about a metric, a daily metric that's useful, like words written per day. So, you know, I talked about writing down my goals, putting them up on the wall. Underneath that, I do like a daily progress tracker, right? Write down sort of my words written per day and kind of my, you know, small wins, like other accomplishments that were meaningful. So I think, you know, again, kind of that idea of making progress visible in the work that really matters to you to kind of combat this sort of, um, you know, progress that we're always kind of seeing, almost false progress that we're always seeing in email is a really powerful thing to think about. Um, cause that's something that we've really, that we've really lost in a way with, um, you know, so much of our creative work happens on the computer, right? Happens, whatever it may be inside Microsoft Word or inside Photoshop. And you really lose sight of kind of all of the versions, all of the iterations that you do when it's kind of inside that, that black box. And so particularly on the long-term creative projects, whether it's a writing project or, you know, building an app or doing a web design, you feel that progress in a tangible way. So figuring out how to actually make that progress physical to make it tangible is really powerful. You know, so when I wrote unsubscribe, for instance, I stacked up all the copies of the drafts on my desk and it kind of got taller as I went along. So you kind of have this testament to your progress, just kind of staring you in the face every day. Um, and that's, you know, extremely, uh, motivational. I'm sure you're, you know, familiar with 
you know, all of the research by Teresa Mabale and other people around how, you know, powerful it is for people to see progress. Now you planted a tree as penance, right? For the one that you killed <laughs> to make all that paper. To... No, I, so I actually do something super similar. So my, my books are really, really sort of research based and, and based on these different journal articles, et cetera. And what I do is on the floor of my office, I have a stack for each chapter. And then obviously as I've, mm-hmm. as I'm done writing that chapter, that stack goes away because I don't need it anymore. I've written that chapter. And so it's like a progress bar in reverse, right? It's a countdown mm-hmm. bar. And when there's nothing left on my floor, it's because I'm done with the book. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that, right. And you're creating your own progress bar to counter, you know, to counter all these progress bars that we see all the time and these sorts of, you know, inane types of things, right. When we're downloading something or when we're, you know, filling out a survey, (laughs) but we need to, as you say, like create them for ourselves so that we can feel more engaged. And by the way, I do actually, I'm sitting at my desk and I have a waste paper basket full of paper because I, um, really like the satisfaction of crumpling up paper and throwing it away. Like that type of physical thing. You're, you're, you know, you're trying to write something and you, you at least, even if you haven't gotten anywhere, you at least have that waste basket full of like attempts and it feels like you're kind of getting somewhere, you know, and when you're writing in word or something like that, it just gets, it gets kind of lost. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I'm the same way. I, I, for as much as like when I'm reading a book that I'm going to write about something in that, et cetera, I much prefer to photocopy that page than uh, mm-hmm. do it in Kindle or anything like that. And part of it's the tangibility, that task, like that tactile feeling of crumpling up the paper when you're done. And I guess I didn't realize that part of it was that that progress bar idea. And I love, I mean, even if you're sort of in this situation where you're listening and you're like, look, I actually love my email inbox. I'm exactly what Dave was joking about, et cetera. I think there's so much to learn from the research on that progress bar approach to the big projects usually don't have it. So you need to think about how are you going to make it? Right. And how are you going to create your own version of that so you can stay motivated? I think that's a huge insight. Yeah, exactly. When I think that we just and that's why I like digging into that psychology, because just, you know, so much of, um, you know, the advice that we get is, you know, like tip based. Right. Do this. Do that. Um, But you don't really understand why you're behaving the way that you are in the first place. And I feel like, you know, actually understanding sort of the the psychological triggers is really powerful because then you can become a bit more conscious and and see the bigger picture. And it's and for me, that shift of understanding that, you know, email and all these other things are just so addictive because they show us progress. And, oh, okay, like I can actually make addictive if I kind of understand that concept and figure out how to show myself progress, um, you know, is, is really powerful and just really quite frankly, effective. Oh, totally. Totally. So for that, for that reason alone, but also a myriad of other ones, I want to encourage people to check out the book, unsubscribe, how to kill email anxiety, avoid distractions and get real work done. I do want to spend a few more minutes talking not about the book, but about you, although we sort of already started, we now know your love for um, destroying paper. Um, But I want to ask you a couple more questions that we ask all our guests if you're ready. I'm ready. All right. Our first question, what's the best advice you've ever received? It's sort of anti-advice, which is that nobody knows what the hell they're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you unpack that one a bit for me. I mean, you know, as you know, I I ran this um, conference and, and, you know, website and book series called 99U for many years, um, at which, uh, you know, a a vast amount of incredible people graced our stages, um, including including yourself. Um, And, you know... 
could be, um, you know, the guy, uh, Tony Fidel, who created Nest and created the first iPad or Sebastian Thrun, who created, uh, you know, led the team that created Google Glass and the self-driving car, right? These types of people. But what you learn when they tell their stories is that they really didn't know what they were doing. They just figured it out as they went along. And to me, that message to see people that have accomplished really incredible things and to kind of get the message that they were just figuring it out as they went along is... Um, you know, both comforting and very encouraging. No, I, I, okay. I like that a lot. It reminds me of, uh, one of Daniel Pink's books, the adventures of Johnny Bunko has, I think one of the rules is literally like, there is no plan. There's so stop thinking there's this grand plan and perfect career path. There's no plan. Um, so what is, uh, I'm curious, you know, we've talked a little bit about your communication habits, your ability to focus in and do, um, the work that actually generates value. What's an ideal work day look like for you? Um, I think an ideal, should I just do the, do the routine? Sure. I mean, ideal for me is I get up, I go for, um, I walk for about a mile to a coffee shop, um, that's in my neighborhood and, and I do creative writing, like, you know, kind of undirected type of writing. Um, then I come home and, um, and then I'll do, you know, this obviously unsubscribes a bit more sort of, you know, business oriented productivity type writing. Um, and I write for maybe um, three hours, you know, trying to do that kind of, you know, maybe 90 minute sprint with a break and then maybe another 90 minute sprint. Um, and then, um, you know, have lunch. And then in the afternoon, I tend to do more of, um, you know, so the morning is more, you know, the deep work kind of Cal Newport concept. And then, you know, the afternoon is more of the, um, work that, you know, is interrupt, you know, kind of a little bit demands a little bit less um, mindfulness and a little bit less deep concentration, you know, whether it's redesigning my website or dealing with some, you know, type of rote work or, you know, something dealing with marketing or something of that nature. So kind of, um, you know, and then going and then maybe doing something like rock climbing or going for a run or something like that. Um, I think, you know, just for me, it's really important to um, have that, have that rhythm of doing, you know, the super deep focus in the morning, um, and then kind of doing a little bit more, you know, doing meetings, calls, those types of things in the afternoon. Hmm. Oh, it makes perfect sense. And a, a quick disclaimer, I assume you mean indoor rock climbing since you do live in New York. So I do I, yeah. <laughs> just the, the, the country dweller in me is picking on you on that one. Sorry. I apologize. It's a cheap, <laughs> it's a totally cheap shot. Um, what are you reading right now? What am I reading right now? Um, let's see. I'm looking. I have a Zadie Smith book um, on uh, Zadie Smith's new book. What is it called? Um, I can't see the name. Something Time um, on my coffee table. And I'm reading um, The Nature Fix um, by Florence, and her last name is escaping me right now, um, which is about kind of the benefits of, you know, getting out into nature for your well-being, for your creativity, et cetera, um, as well as a book called Revenge of the Analog by David Sachs, which is about the um, uh, pleasures of, you know, big, heavy objects or, you know, using things like records and, you know, how, um, there's something, um, very satisfying about having things actually be a bit more difficult or, or a bit longer than, you know, they might in the digital space. Hmm. Swing time, by the way, is the book I think Thank you're you. referring to. Yeah, no, I, and we'll have links to all three of them, but particularly the analog one. I was actually just 
looking at it's still in my cart on Amazon. I have to find another book I want to pair it with. <laughs> um, but looking at a book called Masters of Craft that's the same way applied to sort of work. The people that are deliberately doing much more artisan mm. or craft stuff that we, you know, we outsourced to machines a hundred years ago and now they're taking it back. So um, it's really sort of and, and in line with kind of everything we've been talking about today and in line probably with the podcast, uh, Hurry Slowly. So there exactly. you go. Um, what do you believe that most people disagree with? Um, so something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is this idea that productivity is really about what you don't do, um, which sounds counterintuitive, um, but, you know, goes back to that concept that we touched on earlier, right, about how much, you know, noise is in your inbox and how much noise is, you know, quite frankly, surrounding us in, in all avenues of our, of our kind of working lives. I think that, um, we have gotten so caught up in kind of doing and doing and doing that we take very little time to decide what we should be doing. And so in many ways, um, you know, in this kind of overloaded, overwhelmed, you know, very distracted moment that we live in, um, finding out how to be productive is really about kind of decide, you know, figuring out how to say no, figuring out how to peel away distractions and kind of figuring out how to really protect your attention as this, you know, precious resource that it really is. Oh, I like it. It's, it's very Greg McEwen essentialism of you. I like that a lot. Yeah, I love his book as well. Um, so the title of the show is Radio Free Leader. You know, you're, you're in an interesting situation because I, I look at you as sort of a recovering leader, right? Taking yeah. on the role with 99U, et cetera, leading a team of creatives, which are it's like herding cats. Um, but so I, I, I'm curious to your answer to this. The last question we ask all guests is this, what makes someone a leader? I think it's, I mean, to me, it's really being able to rally people, you know, to inspire them, um, behind a common, behind a common cause. Um, and to have the, but, but to really, to me, the leader is all about that, is all about that long-term vision, you know? And I think you have, um, you know, a lot of times people talk about, um, you know, sort of not being able to teach some talent. Um, and I think that vision as well is one of those concepts that you can't really, um, teach someone. And I, you know, I'm sure if, as I have, you know, you've ever tried to hire for it, you kind of get that concept very quickly. Um, and I think that's something that's becoming increasingly scarce these days because the only way to have long-term vision, the only way that you can kind of tap into the type of thinking that you need to do to have that is by taking time to reflect you know, by having downtime. And so I think that vision is almost becoming this sort of increasingly scarce commodity um, because we all are so kind of overwhelmed and inundated. Yeah, no, I, that's good. I like it. And one of the main contributors of that being overwhelmed and inundated is your email box and the rest of the way that you're approaching doing busy work versus work that matters. So if you want to pick up some insights on that, both why we're addicted and how to break that addiction, I encourage you to check out Unsubscribe. Jocelyn, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks, David.